Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine. Um, I'm your host, David McLaughlin. It's June 28, 2020. Welcome to the show, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, and for those wondering, no, our intro music is not on a record uh, that was going on a slow play and then a fast play. Uh, Not sure how digital audio does that, but... um, Hopefully that does not pretend the audio show, audio for the rest of the show. Um, but tonight we are excited. We're going to talk a little Wisconsin politics. Probably the first time in the history of the show we've had a guest from Wisconsin, uh, Dr. Anthony Shagoski of University of Wisconsin La Crosse is going to come on with us and discuss the um, uh, Wisconsin politics uh, since it's become, you know, a fairly critical state in the last four years. But until then, we're going to go back to a topic that we hadn't talked about in a few weeks because maybe things got a little better, but in the last, I'd say, 10 days to two weeks, it has definitely gotten much, much worse, and it seems on the upswing, unfortunately, and that's coronavirus. Um, it's new places. It's Texas. It's Arizona. It's Florida, it's South Carolina, and there's probably five other states that it's gotten really, really bad in as well um, in the outbreaks and the coronavirus numbers. Um, Catherine, uh, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing in this new Sunbelt wave of coronavirus? Well, I think we're seeing, the, you know, there's differing opinions, but I think we're seeing the results of the lack of taking seriously the masks and the social distancing and then also some of the early reopening so it's kind of a convergence of bad things happening in these states and it's really scary you know that in Houston they're they're short on um, ICU beds and there's fears of you know hospital shortages and then if you compare that to what's happening around the world, it's it's really quite scary. It's really you we begin to wonder when will this uh, subside? When will we? Uh, I mean, I don't know that it'll ever be over until we have a vaccination. But you know, when will when will I be able to go out and go shopping again? <laughs> I mean, I know that's minor, but when will all these people be able to go back to work? When will these restaurants? Uh, reopen. It's very, uh, it's very um, worrisome that we're not seeing any um, reduction. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you what's making it very real for me is, of course, I'm in education, so I'll probably think about it a little more. But you know, we kind of ended the last school year, and I'm sure a lot of us thought, okay, we're going to kind of scrap uh, the rest of this year, have a lot of online learning. 
but next school year hopefully can hit things like normal. And it seemed like we could for a portion, but the more these states, you know, keep getting worse, you get more and more worried. And for a child that's learning to read, that's learning basic math skills, um, the few months they lost last year were not good. If you have another school year with big portions of it, like we just did, um, that's really going to impact that students. And I'm, I've just mentioned the early childhood students. I haven't even talked about all the way through middle, high school, and then um, college age. Because once again, I mean, there's a lot of college students saying, if I can't go back to campus, uh, what am I getting for my money? Uh, and that's a whole other issue. So to me, that's a huge critical piece where kids' long-term learning is going to have some negative impact if we're not able to go back like normal and do the important things. And therefore, I think a lot of folks need to learn to put going to Fuddruckers on the back burner. Um, Tim, what are some of the implications you're seeing? Well, you know, people need to understand something. Now, I'll just talk about a second wave. Guys, we never got out of the first wave. We're still exactly. in it. Uh, you know, the governor of New York was on TV talking till he was blue in the face two months ago when it was so bad up there. And Governor Cuomo was saying then, you know what, this is just the first place this is happening. This is going to move all over the country. You need to see what's go- well, pay attention to what's going on here because this this virus is coming your way. And everybody poo-pooed and said, ah, no, and Trump was saying, well, when the weather warms up, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, people in Alabama were saying, you know, it's a, a New York thing. They're, they're certainly not saying that in Alabama now, which is one of the worst states getting hit. I might also add, guys, that we added over 2,200 new cases in Georgia today. Uh, this, you know, Georgia, as we know, and there are political implications to this virus, serious ones, uh, was one of the very earliest states to open. Well, uh, you know, for two or three weeks after the opening, we just heard literal crowing, how wonderful it was, how wrong everybody was, how right the governor was, how he did exactly right, leadership, blah, blah. Well, you, you, you're not hearing much of that now, I've noticed. Um, and so, um, you know, you were talking about school, David. I mean, you know, that make, it, it's not just the children, even though they are the main focal point of this. Why don't local governments or local school systems tell us, you know, something? Here we are. Coming up on the 1st of July, we got a month to go before kids are supposed to go back to school. We don't know what to do. Parents don't know how to arrange their schedules. Uh, People don't know about picking kids up at school, dropping them off at school. Don't don't know what days. They don't know if they're going to do half their classes online. People don't know what to do. You know what? The well, American people, that... even though they don't act like it, are adults sometimes, and they need to be told something. Just tell us. Well, I think that but comes from the lack of information 
uh, that's getting to non-medical professionals. And, of course, you have such a, you know, almost somebody trying to squelch a lot of that information. We don't have coronavirus briefings at the national level like we were. We have, you know, sharing of white power videos instead of uh, Dr. Fauci coming on and telling what's going on. Um, there needs to be a leadership. Somebody saw, said, you know, one problem we have in this country is we have 50 different plans on wearing masks and social distancing and what should be open and what shouldn't. And I understand one state may be worse than another, but there should be, you know, like we kind of had the um, terror alert ratings. If coronavirus reaches this level in your area, this is what you do. This is what's advised. There needs to be a clear message, and we don't get that from the top. Catherine? Well, I just want to say that, you know, I agree. It's really hard not knowing what's happening. and But I just don't think that they can – Say, okay, we're going to open the schools on X day because we don't know where we are. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We have no way of knowing whether these um, spikes are going to continue to rise or if we're going to get this under control. I mean, I, I absolutely sympathize with um, the parents who want to know and the people who want to know like when their jobs are going to come back. But until we just don't have a handle on it. That's the problem is that it's completely out of control. I mean, my job uh, told us that we would not be going back before X date. They gave us a date, but mm-hmm. we will definitely be working remote until this date. But then after that, we don't know what, I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen. No. because We just don't have this under control. So as, hard as it is for the kids and for the parents, I, I just don't see any other way. I mean, would you rather have them say, okay, we're going to go back to school August 15th and then August 15th comes and it's like, well, we can't go back to school because we can't, we're still on in the spike or we've had another spike or we have, do you see what I mean? I, I mean, I know it's really frustrating and it feels like, I mean, part of it is definitely a lack of leadership, but that lack of leadership goes way back, goes three months back. Three months ago, we might have been able, if we'd been able to, you know, work on this, like David said, as a, a, in a coordinated effort, we might be at a point today where we could say, yeah, we're pretty confident that looking at, you know, the scientists are looking at the situation, and we think that schools could open on September 1st. But I just don't think it's just chaos now. I, I think I, I know a couple of things that we could probably do. Number one and foremost, I hope at least somewhere in the halls of power or with the local school boards or, or uh, the, the governor's office, somebody at least is talking and thinking about this and developing plans for whatever scenario. Number two. I think people should get it through their heads that until we develop at least a vaccine for the foreseeable future, we should operate under the assumption that this virus is not going anywhere. It's going to be here, and we should develop our plans around that. Um, Well, 
We're just and running out of next. time, especially with the school system. We're running out of time. We, we've got to know something soon. Well, that gets into the next question. You know, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said, you know, he said today the window is closing for America to take enough action to get this virus under control. At what point, and, and some people have said they feel like this, that America's just given up. At what point does this just become the common cold? And I don't mean that by the repercussions of it, but I mean it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's just it's not a matter of if you catch it, it's when, unless you live like a hermit. At what point does America just give up? And everybody just runs around, and people get coronavirus, and more people die, and it's kind of a um, survival of the fittest situation. Um, Catherine, uh, I guess it's your round. What do you think? Oh, my God. That's like such a horrible idea. But does it seem like Um, that's where some people in America are moving? I'm just saying it's oh, a yeah. plan. I'm just saying it's good. I'm just saying that's where it seems like some people are going. No, I, I think there are people. But I don't think they're going there consciously. I think it's just that they believe that it's not going to affect them or that the masks don't matter or that social distancing doesn't work. So they're just going to go about their lives and it's if they catch it, you know, it's God's will or whatever. Um, well, and I don't think it's that they're not going to catch it. I think some people think wearing a mask and social distancing are just too hard. It's just, oh, it's hard. It no. feels funny to wear a mask. And I wore one for two straight hours this week. I won't get into why. I wore one for two straight hours. But, I mean, at first, it, it was kind of sucked wearing it that long. But after a while, I got used to it. Uh, the second hour was better than the first. Um, but, but, I mean, it is hard, but is it too hard, Tim? There's politics involved. I mean, I cannot believe that I'm watching television and the wearing or not wearing of a mask has suddenly taken on political implications. That is because of the lack of leadership of that fool in the Oval Office. Uh, He's not wearing a mask, therefore a lot of his base is not wearing a mask proudly uh, to show their support for their president. And, hey, if you're wearing a mask... You must be some kind of liberal that believes the inflated virus numbers of of the fake news media. Now, that's the kind of stuff we're running into. Uh, Tim, I I want to check on that. I want to ask you kind of a follow-up there. I want to ask you a follow-up there. Now, I, I know what you're trying to say, but it's almost like it's not become a political divide. It's almost become an intellectual divide. And I'll tell you where I'm going with this. Dick Cheney, I don't think anybody would ever call him a liberal. He is one of the most conservative people, a long-term Republican, Nardi Party switcher, uh, a Wyoming Republican from way back. They tweeted a picture of him wearing a mask, and he said, real men wear masks. And it was probably good he did it. Maybe he can change a few minds on it. But I think Dick Cheney, while he may be an arch conservative, he has some intellectual capability. He can see some science and some medicine and put two and two together. 
So I think there's almost an intellectual divide more so than even a political one. Now, of course, in our country, intellectual and political has started to resort to where if you have more education, you lean one way, and if you have less, you lean another way. What do you think about that? Only to a point, but but then I look at congressional hearings or Congress in session, and you and me both knows that just about everybody we see on that television screen not only has a college degree, but probably has a very advanced degree, a lot of them from Ivy League school, stuff like that. They're walking around, and you can tell by if they're wearing a mask or not wearing a mask before you see their faces and recognize them, which political party they are in. Now, that sort of stuff is as political as it gets. But here's what I would contend. I bet a lot of those people know better. And I bet in certain situations they do wear masks, and I bet their family wears masks. I think they're afraid of their constituents, that, which is ridiculous, but they're afraid of their constituents, and they're, you know, they don't want to be primaried because they wore a mask. Um, and those constituents are the ones that fit in the anti-intellectual group I'm talking about. What do you think, Catherine? I, uh, I I don't know. I, I think there's like a whole bunch of different kinds of people that don't wear masks. I think it's some of it is uh, just emboldened people who don't think they're going to get sick, whether they're whether they're ed- well educated or not. And then I think there is some. I think there may be some intellectual bias or, you know, sorting, as you said. But whatever it is, it's ridiculous. And people are hurting themselves, their families, their loved ones, and their community by not doing it. So whatever the reason, doesn't really matter. They just need to get with it. Yeah. Or we're going to be living with this, like you said, forever. Or, or until a vaccine happens. Or until yeah. we just go, you know, Hunger Games, Survival of the Fittest, and see who it weeds out. I, you know, um, wow. which is just baffling to think about. Tim, I've heard that Fox News and probably AONN is part of this, too. Um, they spread bad information. They didn't take it seriously, and a lot of their uh, hardcore viewers – you know, got the wrong message. Do you know, have they changed their messaging? Have they come around, or is there still the divide where maybe the Shepard Smith understands it, but the Sean Hannity's don't? I, I, that, that's what you see on Fox. You, you see a split now. That's why Trump's grumbling about him. I can't force myself to watch that uh, One American Network. I, uh, they, they, they are totally off the rails. But it's not just the networks, David. You should have seen, if you didn't get a chance to watch it, you should have seen that coronavirus task force media briefing on Friday. It was like a different reality, one that didn't exist. 
Pence was, I, I was just scratching my because I knew Mike Pence couldn't believe that stuff he was saying, but there he was saying it. And a lot of people saw that. You know what? A lot of people on MSNBC and CNN saw it. A lot of people saw clips from it on the evening news on the major networks. The vice president of the United States spreading utter nonsense. Uh, that That just doesn't help at all. Yeah, um, I did say, you know, that he actually canceled two visits, uh, campaign stops this week. Actually, went to the places we didn't do campaign stops. Well, let me switch gears here for a second and welcome in our guest, Dr. Anthony Shigoski. Welcome, Dr. Shigoski. Well, thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you guys. Yes. Well, um, Anthony, I've already told that you uh, currently teach in Wisconsin, so we're going to talk Wisconsin politics. But just give our listeners a a background on uh, what you've done politically and otherwise. Sure. I'm a native Minnesotan, so I'm from these parts. But I did go to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, for my doctorate in political science, Uh, but then came back to the Midwest because apparently I love absolutely freezing cold winters for some reason so that brought me that brought me back to wisconsin and uh i'm in beautiful western wisconsin here in lacrosse it's uh it's a great area to be in as a political scientist western wisconsin because it is roughly 50 50 as far as partisanship is concerned and because it's actually pretty swingy out here uh in the sense that there are some swing voters out here Uh, This region went for Obama twice and then went for Trump last time. And so uh, it's a great place to be a political scientist uh, out here in wild west Wisconsin. Yes. Well, now, uh, this is why we had you on. We need to know about Wisconsin because, you know, the first election I really remember following was the 88 election. And Michael Dukakis won Wisconsin. And my thinking is if Michael Dukakis can win it, (laughs) Any Democrat in this political environment can't, but yet Hillary Clinton did not win Wisconsin. Now, apparently there's some longer-term trends that maybe some of the rest of us missed. Tell us just kind of the lay of the land about the whole state. Yeah, the lay of the land is that the Republican Party does have quite a bit of strength in Wisconsin. Certainly, Tommy Thompson was elected by wide margins as governor in the 90s. And then you fast forward to 2010, and obviously Scott Walker gets elected then, plus supermajorities in the state legislature or near supermajorities. And that gave Republicans a period from 2010 through 2016 where they had really complete control of state government. Now, meanwhile, Obama wins Wisconsin in 08 and 12 by convincing margins, and then you have Kerry and Gore winning the state in 2004 and 2000. Then you fast forward to 2016, and it's arguably the biggest shocker of the election out of any state that Trump wins Wisconsin by, you know, just uh, several thousand votes. So this is a really odd state politically. It's a hard state to kind of get a handle on politically because it does have a conservative streak in one sense, but it has uh, very much a progressive tradition when you look at it more historically. 
So right now, I would say that Wisconsin, the best I can do for you is to say that Wisconsin is just bitterly divided and bitterly polarized. And that, and right now, both sides are kind of fighting each other to a draw, more or less. Yes. Now, kind of add to that just a geographic feel. We know that here there's um, uh, Madison, which is a fairly large city that's uh, pretty left-leaning. There's Milwaukee. There's where you're at, La Crosse, Green Bay. There's probably a lot of the state that non-native Wisconsin folks aren't familiar with. Just where are the votes, um, Democratic and Republican, across the state? This is one of the most fascinating parts of Wisconsin politics, because although nationwide we've seen a growing divide between rural and urban in the sense that urban areas are going more toward the Democratic side, rural areas are going more toward the Republican side. But in many ways, Wisconsin is really ground zero for that increasing geographic polarization. We've seen extreme geographic polarization here in Wisconsin because the Republican Party in Wisconsin, not only have they given up on Madison and Milwaukee, but they use Madison and Milwaukee as kind of foils that they can use in campaigns saying, uh, well, can you believe these radicals in Madison and Milwaukee as kind of part of their messaging to rural Wisconsin? Meanwhile, the Democrats owe a lot of their success when they do win elections. It's usually because of turnout in Madison and Milwaukee, though, again, there are some other parts of the state like mine that could play a key role in that. But I think what I'm getting at is that Wisconsin is extraordinarily divided on a geographic level. When you look at Madison and Milwaukee, solidly in the Democratic Party camp and only becoming more solid in that direction. Meanwhile, you have rural Wisconsin going the complete opposite direction, more firmly into the Republican camp. And that's no accident. Um, you know, for example, Scott Walker in his campaigns really tried to uh, pit the two types of areas against each other in an effort to appeal to rural voters. Um, he would kind of talk down about urban areas and use that as a way to attract the support of rural residents. But in the process, all of this has resulted in a really divided state where, you know, in Wisconsin, it might as well be two different worlds, depending on if you're in a rural area or an urban area. Yes. Well, I'm going to pass this to Catherine, then Tim. If there's anything I think we still got to cover, I reserve the right to ask another round of questions. Catherine? <laughs> Thanks so much for being on. I'm originally from Michigan, so I can relate to the cold weather. And <laughs> having grown up in a college town, I can totally relate to lacrosse. But anyway, um, I want I, my uh, question is about uh, the convention, whatever that might turn out to be. I think we were all excited about seeing, I mean, I don't know about everybody, but I was looking forward to sort of getting a look at Milwaukee. It is Milwaukee, right? Where the convention yeah. was supposed to be. I was looking forward to seeing um, Milwaukee sort of on display for the country to see. And now it looks like there's going to be some activity, but they're asking all the delegates to stay home and uh so how are people reacting to that and what do you think about that decision well i think with a lot of sadness because milwaukee i think it's overlooked when you think about kind of the major midwest cities 
you know, it's it's almost kind of plays second fiddle to cities like Chicago or Minneapolis. And so there's uh-huh. a lot of there's a lot of enthusiasm for really showcasing Milwaukee and 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 really the strides that it's made as a city over the last number of years. And obviously, there's a strategic element here too to show that the Democrats are remembering about Wisconsin this time as opposed to four years ago. Um, but the situation is that it's going to be a very scaled down convention. It'll be uh, it'll it'll still be anchored in. Milwaukee, but there won't be the massive gathering at the arena where the Milwaukee Bucks play. And all told, it's just going to be a completely different experience because it is going to be more virtual in nature and not kind of the festival atmosphere that you're used to. Now, the question is, does that really matter for the election coming up? And I would say it doesn't really matter because the Democrats have been engaged in a very long uh, long and sustained organizing effort. And I don't think that this convention really moves the needle all that much on its own as far as shifting Wisconsin into the Democratic Party's camp. But it is very disappointing for the city because, uh, you know, we, we, lo- we love to showcase our, 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 our state to the rest of the country, and, and that will be lost to some extent, unfortunately. But, I, I, you know, it's a, you see the two different directions that the parties are going in, like with the Republicans going full bore on uh, just a regular old convention in Jacksonville, Florida, and the Democrats obviously moving in a much different direction. I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, I've never been to a convention because I just can't bear that many people <laughs> all at once. <laughs> but, um, but I think, I mean, I've been working remotely now for almost four months, and a lot of people have. And we've all been using all these virtual tools. And, you know, how many times have we all been on a Zoom or a WebEx meeting? And I just wonder if people are getting um, accustomed to this and that, there might be a lot of enthusiasm around a virtual convention because it will, it may take, you know, it may, it'll have like a whole new like feeling, like maybe, maybe it will. uh, I mean, I I agree with you. I don't think it's, um, I think it's much, it won't be much the sort of festival idea, but I do feel like that people could get enthusiastic and excited around it and maybe enjoy some innovation. Hopefully, the party is looking at some, you know, innovative ways to engage voters. And so I'm optimistic that we might, because we've all been, not everyone, but so many of us have been using these tools now for a few months that maybe we'll be able to make it a little less dull than we thought it might be as a virtual convention. I think that's a really excellent point. Um, If I could uh, just real quick, you know, the Democrats really put this whole thing to the test, you know, um, because the Democrats in advance of the spring election here in Wisconsin, the Democrats abandoned their door to door traditional get out to vote efforts. And what you saw was that they won the Supreme Court election, the state Supreme Court election by a 10 point margin. Uh, And so it does look like the Democratic Party here in Wisconsin, at least, is pivoting and doing so with some success to more of a virtual organizing effort as opposed to the typical boots on the ground, door knocking kind of mode. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing that in in, in Georgia as well, and also with affiliated organizations. You know, the um, issue-based organizations are using um, virtual tools and trying to figure out ways to reach their supporters and voters to make sure they get out to vote. Uh, I did have another question about um, Wisconsin. Is the party there well organized, even though they've been sort of, I mean, because of the situation with the legislature, is the Democratic Party still pretty organized and well funded and all those kind of things in Wisconsin? I would say that they are quite well organized and are quite well funded, but you know, they're in a different situation than most other state parties in a 50-50 state like we are. Because <laughs> one of the strange things about Wisconsin politics, and believe me, there are many strange things about Wisconsin politics, but one of the weird things is that the gerrymandering that has taken place in Wisconsin for the state legislature is so extreme that even in a 50-50 state, even in a state where the Democrats may well win a majority of the vote statewide, there is zero chance that the Democrats could take back the majority in either chamber of the state legislature because of the absolutely extreme gerrymandering that the Republicans <laughs> achieved after they took control of state government in 2000. And so, Actually, you know, you have a really well-funded and well-organized party, but the best they can do is just work to try to avoid the Republicans getting a veto-proof majority in both chambers of the state legislature. So uh, to be clear, the Democratic Party's campaign, at least at the state level, is not let's take back the majorities in the Wisconsin state legislature. It's let's deny the Republicans a two-thirds majority because the Republicans are knocking on the door of a two-thirds majority here in Wisconsin, and that would, of course, allow them to override the vetoes of the Democratic governor. So it's right. one of the odd aspects of politics here that, you know, we're, we're a completely 50-50, evenly matched state, but the gerrymandering here is, frankly, just so effective that, you know, we're not even talking about Democrats taking back total control of state government. Yeah, uh, we can relate to that. I mean, we're trying, but <laughs> we, it's hard. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to pass it on to Tim. Tim. Oh, good evening, doctor. Thank you for being on with us tonight. Uh, I'm a creature of the all the political shows I can, I, I can watch in, in a given day. Well, this morning I turned to one of the national shows, and I saw Nate Silver on as a guest. Turned to another show right after that, and Nate Cohn was on. Both of them said the identical thing, that Donald Trump is down by 10 points in Wisconsin. Would you say that's accurate? And if it is, why? It's not far off. Uh, the latest Marquette University Law Poll, which is the most respected and most accurate poll in the state of Wisconsin, had uh, Biden leading by eight points, 49 percent mm -hmm. to 41 percent. And, you know, you kind of ask, well, wh where is that coming from? 
on the level of the issues, it's clearly from his hand, Trump's handling of race relations, and it's clearly from his handling of the coronavirus, where you see majorities in Wisconsin disapprove of President Trump's handling of those two issues. Then when you dig into the demographics, you start to see something interesting. And you start to see that two groups in particular have moved in Biden's direction. And those two groups are white men with a college degree and white women who do not have a college degree. Both of those groups have shifted in the direction of Joe Biden, at least in the state of Wisconsin, because we do have white uh, white men who don't have a college degree firmly in Donald Trump's camp, white women with a college degree firmly in Biden's camp. But it's those other two groups, uh, white men with a college degree and white women without a college degree, that have really moved the needle in Joe Biden's favor. And obviously the question going forward is, does that stick? Or does it kind of revert back to where those groups are, are kind of more toward the Republican side? But we shall see. But the, the polling does indeed give pretty unequivocally good news for Joe Biden here in Wisconsin. Now, now the president visited Wisconsin, of course, this week. And I was shocked to see him head up toward Green Bay. As I recall, he ran very strongly in that area uh, in 2016. Is his actual base eroding in his strongest areas of the state? It's a terrific question, and I will say that his support in rural Wisconsin is, it remains very strong. But when you look at these other communities, you know, kind of affluent suburbs, affluent communities. I would call Green Bay one of them. You also look at the suburbs of Milwaukee. And what you're seeing there in kind of these affluent suburbs is a real concern that Republicans have about their ability to maintain support. Uh, Again, you know, kind of their rural white base remains steady in favor of Trump. Uh, But certainly, you know, I, I think it's absolutely appropriate to bring up Green Bay. Um, You know, whichever candidate does better in Green Bay, I I would venture would be the winner of Wisconsin, could probably say the same for my part of the state, Um, because Mm -hmm. there are some there are some real swingy parts of Wisconsin. I would I would count Western Wisconsin as one and I would certainly count Green Bay as another. And certainly one of the big reasons Donald Trump won the state in 2016 was that he did far better than expected in Green Bay. Mm hmm. Now, um, it's very obvious at this point that not only is COVID-19 just a national and worldwide tragedy, of course, on a human scale, but it is going to be one of the major issues in this presidential campaign. Now, it's been a major issue in your state. As you know, recently the state Supreme Court tossed uh, out Governor Evers' stay-at-home order. Uh, right. And then on primary day, there was an iconic photograph, and somebody's going to win a Pulitzer Prize for taking it, of the lady <laughs> in line holding up the sign that says this is ridiculous <laughs> while she had a mask on going to vote. Which side 
are people coming down on in this COVID-19 thing? Are they leaning more toward the, the you know, the Democratic idea, let's, let's play it close to the best, stay at home, you know, that, that sort of thing? Or are they leaning more toward uh, the Donald Trump side of things, which says let's pretty much ignore it and open everything wide <laughs> up? Which way are voters going up there? Well, one way to judge that is by looking at the numbers from the latest Marquette poll. And Donald mm-hmm. Trump's handling of the coronavirus got him 52% disapproval. Meanwhile, you look mm-hmm. at the governor. You brought up the governor, Governor Tony Evers, and he maintains the support of a pretty solid majority of Wisconsinites, which, heck, you know, if any statewide elected official here can have you know, well over 50% approval, I'd say they're doing pretty good. And so what you're seeing, I think, is that voters here in Wisconsin are tending to break on the side of, you know, we, we reopen too quickly. Uh, you know, we, we uh, <laughs> and you brought up that Supreme Court ruling and that crazy election that was held. And that was a real low point, I think, for Wisconsin. And I got some heat locally for saying that publicly. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I stand by that, you know, that it is unfathomable to have people voting mm-hmm. under those circumstances and just pretend like everything's okay. Meanwhile, you have people flooding the bars and the restaurants because of the state Supreme Court that is a very conservative Supreme Court and, and is not inclined to support the actions of the governor. And so, uh, yeah, I tell you, you know, I I never get a break here. You know, I mean, like I would just love to have like a, I I would love to have just like a boring period in Wisconsin for a mm-hmm. while. You know, where it's like nothing dramatic is going on, but we have the insane spring election. We had the Supreme Court ruling, which just opened the doors to everything, reopened everything at the drop of the hat. And this week we're seeing a big spike in cases, which is not a coincidence. Plus you've got the convention coming up and yet again, the looming idea that Wisconsin might just decide this thing if it tightens up as we go toward November. Um, One more question and then then I'll throw it back to, to David. Um, You know, if I think of Wisconsin Republicans, I'm going to say, you know, my favorite's a guy like fighting fighting Bob LaFollette, you know. That'd be my kind of guy right there. Right. Uh, One one of the great progressives of all time. Uh, Joe McCarthy obviously wouldn't be my cup of tea. (laughs) And obviously neither would Scott Walker, but... I I have to acknowledge him because, you know, of the length of time he was governor. He survived a recall. Uh, He did some very controversial things, but he followed through on them. And uh, he even, you know, flirted with trying to get the Republican uh, uh, nomination. And so I was wondering, is there any talk up there about any future plans he might have politically? 
You know, it it is a question that people are wondering about around this state. He seems to have ruled out any kind of a run in 2022, um, but uh-huh. he's young enough. He's young enough where his political future here does remain very much an open question. And I would concur entirely with your assessment of Scott Walker. You know, love him or hate him, the guy was effective. I mean, uh-huh. and he was, and he re- he used a really bold approach to politics. You know, his approach to politics was frankly a slash and burn divide and conquer style politics. And it worked. It worked Mm -hmm. to divide the, to divide the state rural versus urban to exploit the polarization in the state to kind of pit people against each other. It worked. And I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's a commentary on Scott Walker commentary on the people of Wisconsin, but Hey, whatever it is, Scott Walker was effective, and he has uh, a, a very interesting future ahead of him. It very much remains to be seen which direction he goes in the future, and it's something that we here in Wisconsin are certainly watching uh, quite closely. Uh, and with that, I will throw it back to David. Thank you, Doctor. Yes. Well, David? I want to ask a question, um, Dr. Shvosky, and the same um, vein, and that would be about the representative that just retired recently, Sean Duffy. Now, is it true that he left Congress to go back and perform on the Real World Rotors Rules Challenge, or is there is that rumor not true? <laughs> well, he, he said he was going back for family reasons, but then he pops up on you know the cable shows as a you know a commentator, and you know I think I frankly think that he kind of prefers that life to being in Congress. You know, he kind of prefers being a talking head. Uh, but yeah, you know, Sean Duffy's interesting because he, he's one of the key figures in kind of capturing that rural resentment that allowed the Republicans to be successful in rural areas. Because for years, his area in northern Wisconsin was represented by a Democrat. And Duffy kind of tapped into that kind of underlying resentment, underlying kind of sentiment that, you know, hey, we can pit urban versus rural. We can kind of exploit these divisions in the state for political gain. And he was able to do that for a while as a member of Congress. Then he has departed. And, uh, hey, the area remains as Republican as ever in kind of rural northern Wisconsin. Yeah, he is a fascinating figure, and he really did. I'm being serious at this part. He, he burst onto the scene through MTV reality shows, um, which is not the usual vehicle for any politician, <laughs> much less a conservative Republican. Um, well, I'm going to ask you one final thing, and that's if someone's heard you tonight, they want to read more about your writings. I know you're on Twitter. But are there, share your Twitter, Twitter handle and tell us any other places folks could read you. Yeah, yeah. Check out my Twitter handle. Now, I have a very difficult uh, to spell last name, so I'll just say go to your show's Twitter page and then find my link there because I got a funny <laughs> last name. Um, and I, I frequently appear as a commentator uh, locally here in Wisconsin. I post all of those links on my Twitter feed. Um, and so it's going to be a busy couple months uh, for sure because, hey, uh, what, one thing that I've learned is that there's never a dull moment in Wisconsin politics. So uh, I'll be busy and uh, sure hope your listeners follow along. 
Yes, great to have you on, and hopefully we can get you back before election to tell us what's going on in Wisconsin in the fall. We'd love that. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, you, Doctor. All right. That was Dr. Anthony Shugoski from University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. Um, Sounds like he has a real handle on the state, and that is an interesting state. I've never visited in person. Uh, I've never had to learn a lot about it, but it seems like one of those states that it'd be good to know more about politically. Um, Well, guys, let's go ahead. We've got about 13 minutes. I don't know how far we'll get through in our our never-ending drama of breaking down uh, Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. We kind of gave an overview we looked at um, California Senator Kamala Harris. We were all about her. So let's continue to move through names. I think we can get through at least two uh, more, and we'll just see how it goes. Um, but the next name on the list, um, Senator from Miss, uh, Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Um, her name, you know, she ran for president and has a very high profile. Um, Catherine, what's your take on Elizabeth Warren being on the presidential ticket? I'm going to sell that one. I, uh, I I want her to stay in the Senate, number one. I don't think that um, she really adds any um, value to the ticket, um, aside from maybe convincing some unruly, unruly progressives to vote for the ticket. But I think the fact that she's from Massachusetts and – Joe's from Rhode Island. I think that, um, you know, geographically not real helpful. And, um, again, I wanted to stay in the Senate. Yeah. Now, small states are tough. Joe's from Delaware, but still that oh, Atlantic yeah, region. Delaware, yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, once again, never visit either of those states either. So maybe they're the same place, and I've just never been there to, to verify that. Um <laughs> Tim, your thoughts? Well, I want to sell her, but I'm going to do a hold. Uh, I, I, I do honestly believe that that Biden is agonizing over that decision a little bit. She is a friend of his. She is someone that he likes very much. That's important when you're choosing a, a running mate yeah. to a lot of people. Although, uh, historically, there have been a couple of times that that just wasn't the case. Uh, She would probably help some with progressives. But the reason I hope he just does not do this, um, other than the fact Catherine's right that she wouldn't really provide him any electoral help per se, it, it is that the governor of that state is a very, very popular Republican and could swing a lot of votes. And we do recall what happened to Ted Kennedy's seat when it opened oh, up. Yeah. Um, and we do not want to, like, achieve a 50-50 tie in the Senate and all of a sudden lose that Senate seat. Uh you know, if, if Biden is elected president. So I, I wouldn't ch- even think about chancing that at all, but I'm still going to do a hole because I do believe she is right there uh, at the end on, on his final list. Yes. Now, um, 
lot of things for me on her. If she was the, the presidential nominee, I would have wholeheartedly supported the ticket. If she's the vice presidential nominee, I'd wholeheartedly support the ticket. I think she puts more thought into government policy than probably 99% of all politicians. I mean, she really does have a plan. And, and Catherine, I think you're right about he, she would help with progressives. But when you talked about unruly progressives, that is one thing I would say about her coalition – her coalition is more folks, they want to see America, the party, move left, but they do understand kind of how to play ball. They're realist. And so I don't think they're as unruly as, say, Bernie Sanders supporters. So I well, don't think that fear is there. I, what do you think, Catherine? Well, I do, I do think that um, Elizabeth Warren in the VP slot might help with some of the Bernie supporters, too. That's, maybe. I, I didn't clarify that. Yeah, and that would be a better point because um, I think, uh, you know, his supporters are more likely to, you know, go Jill Stein than, um, you know, I think hers would be her hardcore supporters. They kind of get it. They get the end game. Um, but I will say the biggest issue with her, she is 71. He's 77, 76. I think he's having a birthday before the election, and that's why it's um, tricky. But I remember before he takes office. Um, and so the one big issue with Joe Biden is the the ticket needs to be younger. I mean, if Mike Pence is the, the young one out of these four, um, that, that's kind of weird. Uh, and so, therefore, I think it needs to be younger. So that's the reason I have reservations about Elizabeth Warren. Probably nothing else uh, about her, but um, I think he's got to go somebody probably under the age of 60 – uh, just uh, kind of get that new leadership. I think it was David Neer we had on the show said whoever the VP nominee is has a pretty decent chance of being the nominee as early as 2024, um, you know, given Joe Biden's age. So we've got to be honest about that. Well, we definitely have time for another name. And because um, I, I think we had heard the list was down to four. So let's talk about somebody that probably maybe the most unfamiliar to us and that's um, Congressional Representative Val Demings from the Orlando area. Before she became a Congressional <laughs> Representative, she worked in law enforcement. don't know if that was the sheriff's office, uh, a police chief's office, but she had a really high rank in the um, Orlando law enforcement community. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on Val Demings? Um. Well, I, I, I had heard of her. She really distinguished herself uh, during a lot of the more contentious hearings uh, uh, on impeachment and some other things. Um, she, she, she really came into the national conscience a little bit on that. She's, of course, well-known in Florida. She is from Florida. There, there is a, 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 a plus. Uh, I'm gonna buy her, but she's 63 years old, I believe. That's right on the borderline of you know of what what you were just talking about. Uh, that that might be the downside to it, but she is a uh, uh, very good trooper. She's very good on her feet. Very good on television. Um. Uh, she's very articulate. She knows her stuff. Uh, and 
and and you know she checks off all the boxes uh, also as, as being a woman and a woman of color, which a lot of voters really want to see. And so I'll do buy on her, I think. Okay, Catherine, your thoughts on Val Demings? Yeah, I have about the same impression of her as Tim does. I think she, you know, she'll be a good running partner with Joe Biden, assuming they get along well. Um, she's got a lot of energy, and um, and again, you know, sixty-three probably is the right on the edge, but still young enough to run for a fact for a run in 2024 and, um, and and the fact that she's a woman of color and has experience uh, to back that up is, is good and so I, I'm going to buy her yes well um I'll I'll buy her two. I know I said the number sixty, but hey, age is just a number. I think two things kind of help her. Um, one is substantial, I guess, and one is more superficial. One, um, she's a new face on the scene, therefore, I guess she hasn't been around forever. So therefore, your sixty-three seems a little younger. And then two, she doesn't look sixty-three. Um, you know, she she seems younger than that. So I, I'll. You know, I'll just break my rule I just made a few minutes ago because she does, you know, seem like a younger 63. She's from the right state, Florida. I mean, if you're going to pick three states, probably Florida could be one of them where you'd want to pick some votes. I mean, Vice President Bob Graham would have been an excellent pick for President Gore. Um, He finds those 600 votes he needs at that point. Um, But – uh, I don't know that Florida will be the same state. Another thing is is we are going to have to have a very tough conversation about law enforcement, and I do think an African-American that has worn a badge is somebody that could really be critical to that conversation because you're not going to – if you go all one way, you're going to shut the other side down, and you're not going to have a conversation. So if you, you were to go all one way, well, we're going to completely you know, dismantle police forces – that's not somewhere where all the American people are. And if you went the other way, we're going to have no change, and we're going to keep doing business as usual like happened in Minnesota, you're going to shut down a whole lot of people. And so you're going to have to have a conversation and somebody can bring those sides together. And she seems like somebody that could do that. So um, I'm going to buy Val Demings. Guys, we have three minutes, and we have one person, according to CNN, that's still on the list. I think we go into overtime if we need to. And we discuss Catherine's mayor – uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is just moved up this list. I think the first time the list came out, it was 10 or 12 names. She was on there. People were like, what? And every time they went over down the list, Keisha Lance Bottoms stays on the list and moves up. Catherine, what's your take? I'm going to sell her. <clears throat> I like her very much. Um, but she's got a lot of work to do here in Atlanta. There's a lot going on with um, our police force and um, economics and dealing with um, Brian Kemp and, you know, the Republican leadership. Um, I, I just, I think she's, uh, she's young enough and she will be poised to, for some, uh, some future national leadership, but I just don't think now is her time. Okay. Tim, your thoughts. Well, 
I agree totally with everything Catherine just said. That that was very well done, by the way, Catherine. You get one out of boy. Um, and <laughs> the, uh, 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 another thing I, I want to mention here is that Joe Biden himself had said when he picks a vice president, he wants that person to be ready to assume the presidency from day one and that experience at the national level will be a major priority. If he picks her, it won't be five minutes till someone is reminding him of what he said, and then they'll ask him, why did you pick her? I like her very much, too. I think she's doing a fine job under difficult circumstances right now in one of the world's great cities. But she just doesn't have those national chops yet. She doesn't have that national and international experience that uh, Joe Biden would be looking for in his running mate. So I just got to sell her, David. Okay. I'll be the contrarian. Um, I'll buy her. Because, hey, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there's nothing that someone with a Georgia State education from the 1990s can't do. I just learned that, that she and I actually went to Georgia State at the same time. Different schools, but um, college education, college of law, but I I thought that was interesting. But that wouldn't be wide buyer. I do think, given this moment in which her profile has been raised, she's kind of risen to the occasion um, obviously, you know, international affairs is not going to be her strength, but it was Joe Biden's. I mean, that's kind of why he was picked, um, you know, to, to be President Obama's vice president. So she'd have to do some OJT. And, and Catherine, the, the things you mentioned about being so tough, dealing with Brian Kemp, um, looking at policing, if she's offered the job, I think she takes it because probably vice president might be easier over the next four years <laughs> than um, being mayor of Atlanta. Um, so yeah. that would be tough. And and speaking of Brian Kemp, I mean, I think there's a chance that at some point, if she doesn't get picked and her her profile raises, she becomes a candidate for governor, uh, be it 2026 or 2022. Um, and I think it might end up being 2026 for a lot of folks might be the better year. Um, but I'm going to buy her. There's something he likes about her. I think there's loyalty he likes. And of these names, if I'm not mistaken. She's been with him longer than anybody. She endorsed him early. She went to Iowa. And so if it's a comfort and if it's a loyalty issue, she's going to check some boxes that at least two of the candidates can't because they ran against him. I mean, I had 100% right to do that, and I think they'd work together fine now, but um, they weren't certainly weren't endorsing him because they were endorsing themselves. So I think that's um, something to figure out. But it looks like it'll be – what are y'all hearing, about another month? It may be um, yeah. late July first when we hear August. this, correct? First no, August. first of August, maybe, yeah. Yeah. So we'll hear more news. Then the list gets winnowed down, of course, as soon as we do these four names. We'll hear three of them aren't on the list, and there's five new ones. <laughs> and, and our segment will be out of date, but we tried. Um, but anyway, uh, until next week when we have uh, Professor Magic Wade, of um, University of Illinois Springfield come on the show, who's actually going to discuss Minnesota politics, among other things, with us, because that's where her um, background's from. Uh, It's been the Cozy Vine. Good night, everybody. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united 
America still be a force for